Thanks for tuning into this podcast from KYMN Radio. Consider subscribing to get notifications the next time we post a podcast. And if you enjoy this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and share with a friend or on social media. 95.1 The One revolutionizes radio with a playlist that lasts for days, not minutes. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 29th, and you've joined us for today's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security, including topics which deserve greater attention than they receive in American media. We have one of those topics for you today. Back in April, we were joined by Professor Michael Goldman as we looked at the role of international institutions on international and national security. During that conversation, it became apparent we should take a deeper look at India due to its strategic relevance to national security issues in both Asia and around the world. So today, we're once again joined by Professor Goldman for an in-depth discussion on the politics, economics, and security challenges in India. Professor Michael Goldman earned his bachelor's degree at Northwestern University and his master's and doctorate at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He teaches at the University of Minnesota on the Twin Cities campus in the Department of Sociology and the Institute of Global Studies in the areas of environment, globalization, cities and development, global expertise, and financialization. He was awarded the endowed Dr. V.K.R.V. Rao Chair Professor at the Institute for Social and Economic Change in Bengaluru, India, and a number of other awards such as the McKnight Presidential Fellow at the University of Minnesota and a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. He is part of a transnational team of scholars funded by the National Science Foundation to conduct research on speculative urbanism, land, livelihoods, and finance capital in both India and Indonesia. He has published two scholarly books on the World Bank and international institutions, as well as a series of scholarly and popular articles, and is currently finishing a book manuscript on the new volatilities of city life. Professor Michael Goldman, welcome back to National Security This Week. Thanks for having me, John. And where are you this morning? I'm in uh, southern Minneapolis. Okay, all right. In my house. Okay. (laughs) Well, we're on Zoom this morning, so uh, we're going to have a great great discussion. It's nice to see you on on my video here. Uh, So, Professor Goldman, when you were here on our show back in April, you told us a bit about the term the Global South. Uh, much of your study has been dedicated to understanding the global south. Can you can you please remind our listeners what the global south is and, and which nations are included and how this applies, this term, uh, to India? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, a, it's kind of a clumsy term. Uh, it's a simplified way of talking about the, the world um, of countries, mostly in Latin America, mostly in Asia and in, on the continent of Africa. I mean, it comes from uh, the older version was developing countries, developed countries, or empire and colonies. Uh, after World War II, the, uh, the, the countries that, that fought for independence decided to call themselves the third world, in a sense different from the Cold War of the U.S. empire, the Soviet empire. 
But after a while, you know, third world sounded sort of uh, pejorative, like, mm. oh, you know, this is where the poor people live, uh, you know, the third world of Detroit, etc. So there's now more kind of a sanitized term called the global south, which geographically means mostly the countries down in the southern hemisphere, you know, aside from Australia, New Zealand, and such. But it's and India, of course, is you know second most populous country in the southern hemisphere. Uh, it's poverty levels are high and its income levels are low compared to the rest of the world. So it's considered one of the anchors of the global south. Okay. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into our discussions on on India, and, and we'll start maybe with uh, with India's political climate, uh, which is kind of a fascinating thing as you as you look at it. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit about what the major political parties are in India, and what percentage of the Indian Parliament each one controls? Uh, I, I think that's going to be sort of an interesting uh, lead in to all the other things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it, the, historically, uh, after independence, you know, 1947 and such, the Congress Party, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the leaders of the kind of mainstream revolt against uh, the British. Uh, became empowered, and the first prime minister was Nehru. Mm-hmm. And it be, and over the decades, it's been considered like a dynasty, uh, literally because uh, his daughter Indira Gandhi, no relation to Mahatma, Indira right. Gandhi um, became prime minister and became quite a brutal prime minister for a while. Uh, was uh, and then eventually others came into power, and then their, uh, her uh, son Rajiv Gandhi. Uh, became in power until he was assassinated. So uh, Congress Party had sort of this domination over Indian politics for decades uh, until it kind of uh, disintegrated. Um, and now, uh, the last decade or so, the BJP, uh, which is considered a right-wing uh, Hindu nationalist party, uh, has been in power, and uh, its, its prime minister is Modi, uh, and uh, those, uh, uh, the BJP is in power uh, in many states as well as nationally. Uh, Congress has a small portion of uh, parliamentary seats. But what they do is, they, similar to European countries, they create coalitions. So Congress is part of a coalition of small um, parties, and BJP is also a coalition. But what's interesting is that in each state, the BJP has its extreme weaknesses. So even though they have a prime minister in power, uh, it's contested state by state. And so, you know, in any given uh, set of elections, one doesn't know if the BJP will remain in power. And then there's a third element, which is states have their own what we call regional parties based on, you know, regional politics. And they're, they're like the unknown that can be part of coalitions that, you know, can can turn one power uh, majority into a minority. Uh, let, let's continue on that 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 theme for a bit. Uh, why why was it that the the Indian Indian National Congress Party, the party of Nehru and and uh, and the Gandhi family there, uh, why, why did they collapse? What was it that they did wrong that ushered in this uh, this party? The is it the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP? Is that is that the proper yeah, pronunciation? Yeah, I mean it, it's like the Indians People Party. Every party is named something like the Indians People Party, John okay. Dahl. And, and uh, Congress is because it was the National Congress, literally, uh, that was trying to replace the you know British uh, power. Um, well, that's a good question. And there's a lot of, you know, 
possible answers. Uh, there's a there's a scholar, Thomas Bloom uh, Hansen at Stanford, who's a, a scholar of the BJP and the, the uh, right wing parties uh, across the uh, western side of India that put the BJP in power. And, and his argument is is basically that. Uh, the Congress Party promised democracy, but democracy all the way down to the ground. And what it gave, in a sense, was uh, unfulfilled promises. Yes, you could vote, but, um, you know, uh, and yes, there was a huge social welfare system, but the money, ne- you know, never necessarily got to the farmer or never necessarily got to the worker unemployed or all these promises of building housing and providing food rations and stuff. There was always something missing. And so what, what he said was, and many others would say, is that, that Congress created a vacuum politically, that they were the most dominant, but they provided uh, such uh, dissatisfaction that people were looking for, well, you know, who can lead us? And what you had was in, in the Western India, this upsurge of, uh, you know, what some would call fascist Hindu right um, militarism. That is that we will, interesting enough, you know, uh, that we will provide social services in the slums, in the working class neighborhoods. We will help you if you join our, our movement. And part of the, the, the sad thing about the movement, which you see today all over the world in this kind of authoritarian populism, is that there's always the fall guy. There's always the scapegoat. Uh, why it is that your troubles are there. It's not just, you know, Congress party in power, but it's also the Muslims or the Christians mm. or the ethnic minorities. And so it became um, a, a stature, an ideological stature issue, not just provisioning issue, not just that Congress didn't provide housing, welfare, income, but also that Congress represented this long-standing British history of uh in the enfeebled uh, Indian, the weak Indian, you know. And so what, what this, the RSS and then the BJP have done over the last few decades is rewritten Indian history to show the, the Hindu warrior as the, the symbol of, you know, India and Indian history. But of course, you have to be uh, a Hindu. And, you, uh, and who was the warrior always fighting against? You know, it wasn't just the British. It was also the, um, you know, the Ottoman Empire and that's long history of, uh, of Muslim um, power and all the way down to today in the slum, you know, the, the Muslims in the slum are become the enemy to the Hindus in the slum all the way up, up, up the status pole. And so unlike Congress, which just ruled from above, the BJP has successfully ruled from below in a sense, animating this kind of uh, animus, uh, uh, you know, for one kind of discourse against another which is quite powerful. You know, even if they don't deliver the meal, <laughs> they've delivered this kind of dream of, of power uh, that has, you know, swept them into um, political power. Yeah, I, I find it uh, interesting how this impact of, uh, of nationalism fundamentally changes the character of a, of a nation once it takes hold. Uh, usually, from my experience as a, as a career intel, intelligence officer, any country that turns very nationalist, <laughs> there tends to be a significant set of problems both outward and inwardly uh, yeah. when that happens, uh, when a government is strongly supported, a nationalist government is strongly supported. Which brings us to uh, the BJP's uh, prime minister, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. 
what can you tell us about about Modi? He's he's a bit of a character. I've seen some interviews with him. There's a there was a 60 Minutes piece done on him last season. Why is he so popular among so many Indians? Uh, is it his policies or his personality? A little bit of both. Yeah, well, it's a personality cult, no question. Uh, you know, it's the um, it's the the narrative that gets created and drummed up and repeated in so many ways that he was. He was a, a tea boy. You know, he was the boy that delivered tea and who came from poverty um, and then joined, joined the, you know, the equivalent of the RSS and, in, and became a, um, you know, like a foot soldier for this new movement of Hindu identity. So, and, and he's a purist, you know, he doesn't, uh, he's no longer with his wife or he, that's a mystery as to what happened uh, to that relationship. But, you know, he's just, it's almost like he's taken on that kind of Gandhian symbolism, wearing simple clothing and living a simple life, but actually, you know, uh, pushes aside the kind of Mahatma Gandhi politics of equality and forgiveness and sacrifice. So he sacrifices in a sense. He, he you know, he eschews wealth, but he's surrounded by wealth. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> but, but, you know, so, I mean, the, when, when, when the BJP runs for office locally or all the way up to the prime minister, you know, they bring out the golden chariots and, you know, they, they put on the headdress and they, they dress like, uh, like Hindu gods or warriors to illustrate the, the power of, of the personality as well as the party. So it's, you know, it's, and, and now if, if you look at the media, uh, a huge percentage of journalists have been fired or um, even arrested for saying something critical about the, the government and particularly the prime minister, cartoonists, uh, actors, and of course, uh, academics too, imprisoned, uh, harassed, uh, you know, threatened. Uh, some, you know, uh, a female uh, scholar in, in, in Bangalore was, uh, was assassinated by a mob, you know, uh, because she, she spoke critically of this kind of uh, rhetoric, you know. So in the world's largest democracy, uh, those freedoms that democracy generally brings are fading in India? Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, no, uh, let's see. That's a yes on the one hand. Okay. Yes, they're fading on that <laughs> side. I, later on, I could tell you about the, you know, the resistance and the rise of, you know, kind of more of a uh, local level forms of democracy. That, okay. You know, it's quite and, fascinating. And we can get into that. Yeah. Uh, I do know that uh, India... Uh, so 1.4 million or billion people on in the country right now. I think I saw a uh, no. How many is it right now? Oh, uh, like 1.2 or so billion. Oh, I did see a uh, an article that came out maybe a month or so ago talking about an estimate that India's population may reach 1.6 billion by the end of this decade. Uh, have you heard about that at all? I think that's a pretty uh, fast population growth. I don't know if that can happen, but yeah, you know, uh, no, I don't think that. Well, it's a projection, right? Yeah, that's uh, right. I mean, first of all, a lot of people died and are dying from COVID, right? But and and the poverty rates have just skyrocketed since uh, not just COVID, but the fin- uh, the economic crisis preceding it, which we can talk about. But um, I've just looked up. Um, uh, fertility rates, which is not a topic I typically focus on or think about, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know the fertility rates in Indian cities, which is you know which are cities are quite large, uh, huge you know population uh, now is living in the cities, uh, is barely uh, reproducing itself. 
So the fertility rates are as low as uh, parts of Europe, many parts of Europe. Okay. So it's a little bit of a um, a myth that uh, fertility rates are so high in India. In the in the countryside, they're they're a bit higher. Of course, the needs of workers in the farm family are are higher, but actually, fertility rates are quite low throughout India. Uh, now you can say it's remarkable because twenty years ago they were much higher, but I think. Uh, you know, if we caught up to the more recent data, you realize that the kind of quote unquote population problem is really not, uh, you know, a- analytically precise for uh, mm. India these days, even though, of course, it's a large population. So so talk to me a little bit about, you know, it's the world's largest democracy. What kind of participation rates does India have in their elections every every time they have one? Well, of course, you know, much better than the United States, you know, the the, the oldest democracy in yeah. the world. Uh, they they uh, kind of put us to shame, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they do. I mean, they do it. They do, of course. You know, and, and actually, if we had time, you know, we could show uh, similarities between what's happening in India and what's happening with the U.S. But, um, uh, you know, because actually participation rates in the U.S. of the last couple of elections have been higher than they've ever been, you know, which is quite impressive yeah. uh, of, you know, recent times. I think that participation rates are around 65% in India. Okay. Yeah, which which is high. Uh, it's high because, uh, you know, uh, well, because uh, a lot of people are too busy to, to vote. They're, people don't have the incentive to vote. Actually, the rich don't vote because they know how to, uh, you know, work with power in more powerful ways. You know, one man we have vote is not the most powerful way <laughs> to influence politics. Right. So interesting enough, uh, but... But, uh, you know, huge populations, uh, you know, working class, peasants, you know, farmers uh, do vote. Now, there is a, a kind of underbelly to this point of high participation rates, because if you talk to voters, particularly, um, you know, working class folks who, you know, drive taxis or serve food and what have you, they'll tell you that they um, they voted for as many parties as they received, uh, you know, kickbacks from, you know. <laughs> and so there's all, always like down to the last day there, there people are being approached, you know, for their quote unquote vote. If you, you know, with a, with a little bit of, a, uh, you know, bakshish or payment. So it, there is a business of voting and people can make a little bit of money uh, by promising certain votes. And that's, you know, that's sort of depressing, but, um, uh, you know, I think that's real. That's an interesting commentary on, on democracy. Uh, so for our <laughs> audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Goldman from the University of Minnesota. We're discussing the nation of India and its role in Asia and the world. Uh, so, Professor Goldman, let's shift over to India's economic challenges and opportunities, frankly. Let's start with uh, India's challenges. Can you tell us a, a, a bit about India's population and how demographics impact economic opportunities for Indians? Yeah, well, that's a, a good question. I mean, by demographics, I would say that it is a uh, labor labor abundant society, right? Yep. <laughs> so any kind of investment that employs people that gets them to work and actually get a better pay is the kind of uh, investment domestic or foreign that I think, uh, you know, kind of rational economic uh, policy should, should promote. Um, Unfortunately, in the last couple of decades, investment has gone the other direction. 
And that means, like, for I'll give you an extreme case. Uh, before COVID, I was I, I, I go to India regularly, particularly the city of Bang, Bangalore, Bangalore, to do research on on the economy. And I was sitting with a financier from a, a bank, private bank, and I, he was talking about the, the influx of Amazon and Walmart, mm. uh, and, and which is huge, and that's something that we can talk about. And and I said, oh, what's the, Amazon's biggest investment lately? And and I'm imagining you know a workforce. And he said, well, the world's largest warehouse is, is was just built outside of Hyderabad, which is a major IT uh, city and and you know, other has other enterprises as well in East India. And, uh, and I said, well, how many people does it employ? He says, no, listen to the story. He said, basically, it's the, not only the world's largest warehouse, it's the first completely robotic warehouse. Huh. And, and I said, robotic, but what about the workforce? I mean, why would Amazon invest, you know, when work is quote unquote, so cheap in India, isn't that why, you know, Northern capital is investing in India? And he said, no, it's not to create a warehouse that's you know good for India. It's to test out whether we can build a robotic uh, warehouse and then ship it to the Shakopee, you know, right. <laughs> Minnesota or wherever else in the world. Yeah. So, so the question, so, so what I'm, I'm proposing is there's a lot of foreign, what's called FDI, foreign direct investment going into India, especially now amidst COVID and where there's a real economic slowdown. So, you know, you wonder, well, well, what's it, where is it going? And so that's one, just one example. It's an example where you can appreciate the economy, according to investors, is truly global. And so what can, what can uh, the city of Hyderabad in India offer? It can offer cheap land and cheap labor to build the warehouse and then an experimental ground with subsidies, that is tax-free, to test out robotics, not built in India, uh, such that you could see whether there could, it could be a platform for other parts of the world. And that investment, which was probably, you know, whatever, $30 million, I'm just guessing, uh, employs very few Indians. And so uh, the, the downside of the economy in India, and we could talk about the upside, the downside is that a lot of foreign direct investment is going into uh, investments that are not employing people. And that's uh, that's kind of a, a dangerous future to be setting up, right? Because what foreign capital does, Indian capital sometimes imitates, you know, and the, and the government supports through subsidies and tax-free breaks and stuff like that. Well, technologists have been talking for a long time now about the coming automation bomb uh, and how it's going to impact uh, labor uh, on a global scale, certainly in the more advanced countries. Uh, so yeah. what you're really telling us here. Uh, is that India is the testing ground for uh, massive job loss in in a lot of different uh, sectors here, even here in the United States. Uh, which is why, which is why I would vote for the social infrastructure bill <laughs> yeah, okay. because we're going to need a lot of social support as the new infrastructure comes, which will be really uh, you know labor reducing. You know, yeah. Typically, yeah. well, companies invest their money very wisely, generally speaking, especially the larger right. companies. Uh, and they want to cut uh, cut costs and increase uh, profits. Uh, let's uh, expand the economic discussion just a bit. Uh, what mm-hmm. what business sectors as a whole drive the Indian economy? I, I feel like high technology, research, development, testing, and evaluation, you were just touching on it a little bit, has become very important in India. What, what else drives their GDP? Well, 
let's spend a second just appreciating how phenomenal that IT revolution has become in India. Yeah. And it's truly phenomenal. I mean, it's fueled the growth of one of the world's largest middle class, you know, uh, which leads to consumption and investment and real estate and what have you, and education. Uh, and also to appreciate the education side of the fact that there are now all these Indian engineers. I mean, we see them here in America, all over the world and in India, which is an amazing achievement. That is that uh, a percentage of the population are becoming, you know, uh, employable all over the world. And, and then if you work down, there are these, you know, uh, certificates of working with computers, uh, more like technical institutes that uh, employing the working class uh, for the first time. So that there is a sort of spread of the IT revolution that has al- allowed for you know incomes to grow and you know people and of course businesses to prosper. There are a lot of IT companies in India that are being right now are being bought up by European <laughs> American companies uh, because of you know their efficiency, creativity, and what have you. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the one sector that you really but you don't want to obsess about it because why? Well, because seventy percent of the population work in small farms, mm. you know, which have a, which the two worlds are completely disconnected. The only connection is that IT needs a lot of water and so do small farms. <laughs> and right. so, you know, the, the water is being redirected to the cities, you know, real estate and highways and what have you. And small farms are losing access to water. And that's the bulk of the population. So where, where investment is not going is in small agriculture, you know, uh, the family farm or the, the village network of farms where it is going in, in is more kind of corporatized farming, uh, which only produces export crops. And so you have this division where the food market, you know, food prices are really going up high, making it hard for the average person to buy tomatoes and potatoes and things like that. As those things become potato chips and ketchup and, you know, get, yeah. get exported out. So and I would say just like the United States, the phenomenal growth of the economy is leading to a lot of social inequality and unrest. You know. So I'm fond of of commenting on the fact that uh, <clears throat> human behavior and certainly the markets are directly impacted by uh, the incentives put in place through legislation. Uh, and incentives could be both carrots and sticks, right? And it sounds to me like a lot of the incentives that the BJP has put in place maybe over in India is driving – uh, some of the economic development in the direction it's going right now in India. Uh, you mentioned that 70% of people are involved in uh, basically, uh, is that kind of subsistence level farming? It's not a, a whole lot of extra food for, for marketplace, I, I guess? Well, a, a range. A but, range. Uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily have to be poor, but but they have only basics, you know, to okay. provide. And to uh, they're not the kind of corporate agriculture, which yeah. are like, you know, soy farms that we have here. And in India, do you see uh, the incentives that the government has put in place uh, forcing consolidation of farming, much like we see here in in, uh, in the United States and certainly in Minnesota, where small family farms are being sort of driven out in favor of larger com- combinations? Oh, absolutely. And that's really an interesting moment, which I can bring from the, the beginning conversation, which is the democracy that is rising up, right? Uh, in the midst of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in, in, in the in the midst of uh, Occupy movements, uh, women's rights movements uh, all all across the world. The largest protest, you know, I think, in history, certainly in 2020, 
were the up to 100 million farmers that took over uh, New Delhi, wow. completely closed down the city. <laughs> oh I mean, those estimates come from social movements, but let's just say whatever, 70 million. It was outrageous and it was crazy and it was spontaneous. And the reason why they were closing down the, uh, the capital and many capitals around the country is because the BJP passed without any conversation in parliament uh, or in the public, uh, a farm bill, a set, three farm bills that uh, basically uh, pushed for the, the uh, re- eliminating the incentives and subsidies going to small farmers and creating incentives to corporate farming. Wow. And, and part of it are preconditions for, by Walmart and Amazon uh, and, the, and the big chains to get access to India. Because India is a, is a country, among other things, like France, of small farmers and small shops. Mm-hmm. You know, any street, any village, small shops, you know, provided food by small farmers. And it's true all the way to the cities. I mean, there's obviously corporate agriculture and, and there's now supermarkets. But the big investments uh, space right now is Walmart and Amazon, warehouses, highways, and um, transforming small agriculture into corporate agriculture. So it can be like just-in-time production. And that and, and farmers realize that's the death knell for their existence. You know, rural India, it will be destroyed, is the argument. So millions and millions of people took to the streets. And right now, Modi is still trying to deal with this tension between, <laughs> you know, this kind of nationalist ideology of protect the yeoman and protect the simple man and protect the Hindu farmer with their corporate executives that are saying, this is the way we get out of our economic stagnation is to support this foreign investment. And, uh, you know, it shows all the contradictions of kind of nationalist uh, ideology, right? Because you could say this is very (laughs) anti-nationalist, right? (laughs) Supporting Walmart and Amazon over uh, farming, 70% of the population. Well, we it's know interesting. That, yeah, we know that capitalism sort of drives the most efficient use of resources, right? And so that's yeah. coming to a head against what has been traditionally the way we've always done it, right? Uh, so that's going right. to cause some challenges in India. So uh, let's move on to one other uh, economic piece, and that's uh, that's the issue of generating power. The last I heard, India was heavily embracing a coal-fired electrical power as a means to provide electricity to all Indians, sort of a national electrification program, so to speak. And I know that's one of the things that uh, Modi has been advocating for. Is India making any major investments in clean energy development? Uh, China is the world's leader in clean energy investments, and we know that India and China are strong competitors, not only in Asia, but also on the world stage. Is is there any of that competition spurring an equal response from the Indian government in clean energy as a counter to climate change? And especially if you consider that India gets fairly hot anyway in the summer. (laughs) (laughs) And we know that climate change is probably bringing a global warming effect. So what's India doing about this? Yeah, you know, the glaciers are melting in the Himalayas. Uh, The rivers are flooding cities. You know, when the monsoon comes, which comes twice a year, uh, it, it's, it, it immediately floods, uh, you know, floods out cities and towns. The seas are rising, so the coastal areas are becoming very dangerous, you know, like Miami, right. <laughs> uh, like New York City. But, but of course, the consequences are, are greater, you know, because of the number of people and less infrastructure to, to at least mitigate some of these disasters. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the question has two parts to it. One is, the investment in renewable energies, right? And I think that's so important. And the World Bank is pushing, you know, loans to uh, to support that. 
But but the, but the but the other part of the question is: Is it mitigating? You know the current the climate crisis. Is it somehow reducing it? And there's some really important kind of global fact, which is even though there's such criticism, particularly in Europe and the United States, but around the world against coal, mm-hmm. uh, coal production has never been higher. Right. <laughs> so so it's the key is is not that that solar and wind and thermal uh, and other form of biogas uh, should be uh, invested in, but will it replace the fossil fuel sector, the, the greenhouse gas emitting sector? And that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is happening is there's huge investment, like in solar, particularly in the desert, uh, where, you know, uh, foreign investors, uh, China is not allowed to invest, but, you know, West, uh, you know, European investors and such are investing in solar power. Singapore, Japanese are investing in solar power, wind, thermal. It's starting to happen. But coal investments are, are continuing to rise. Uh, World Bank still supports coal investments, which is, you know, which is absolutely ludicrous. So it's important to pull apart those two points. Yes, on uh, renewables, um, but no on mitigating, <laughs> you know, by reducing fossil fuels, you know. So, for example, uh, I just read that by 2040, uh, India will be uh, will be consuming 25 percent of the world's energy, 25 percent, which is huge. <laughs> so it, your question is important, right? But it's also um, it's also going to be consuming half of the coal in the country and in the world, you know. Wow. And so you know, if 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 anybody, everyone who knows in the in the so called winter time uh, in cities in India, you, you can barely breathe because right, the, right. the air is so toxic. It's it's coal, it's charcoal, wood, and, you know, it's it's fumes from the cars. And because of the way in which the clouds come in, it just stays within the cities. It's toxic, it's dangerous. They've already calculated how many years it takes off a, a person's life. And that has that's not slowing down. And the problem is because the the, the, the discourse and the you know the, yeah, the let's say the the love of the idea of growth to get out of poverty is is kind of the myth that gets perpetuated in the United States and in India, such as more is better. Yeah, and I think you know India is getting invested in alternative energies, but not at the as, as a way to close down hmm. the the dangerous uh, energy sources, and that and that's creating problems for India. Yeah. Uh, so for our your, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Goldman from the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the nation of India and its role in Asia and the world. Uh, okay, Professor Goldman, we, we, let's shift over to India's national security challenges. Uh, I've been chomping at the bit to ask you about some of these. How, how do you see the relationship between India and China unfolding in the coming years? Oh well, I can't predict the future, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but things aren't so good right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, China has, if you will, all the power. I mean, it does in the region. You know, it's building military bases on islands that it's creating in the South China Sea. Yeah. You know, uh, Japan can't. You know, it can't stop them. The U.S. is what you know. It, it's. It, it's a it's a difficult thing to do, right? China is far away; it's none of our business, <laughs> and 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 yet the neighboring countries really can't do anything about it either. Yeah, you know the the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, China is investing in infrastructure in sixty different countries around Asia, 
Europe, around the world, uh, is but, a but way not, to, But not in India, right? <laughs> no, it can't in India. But it is in Nepal and Pakistan and, and yeah. Bangladesh. And, and, and these countries are quickly falling into debt to China. Right. And that, that's not economic debt. That's like also political debt. Right. <laughs> so, so in a sense, China is creating its sphere of influence yeah. that, that, you know, that no one is really able to compete with. Uh, so that's that's a danger point, um, but also just India and China's. If you look at the the sad pictures of soldiers, you know, on these mountaintops in the right. Himalayas, protecting a line in the in the mountain, you know, uh, every once in a while somebody gets shot, and there's. Uh, but what's worse is what's not that literal kind of back and forth, but the the politics, the rhetoric. You know, coming out of New Delhi, and I'm sure out of Beijing, but out of New Delhi is, you know, these enemies. The, you know, Pakistan is an enemy because they're Muslim, even though they used to be one country. Right. Uh, China is an enemy because it's, it's sort of sphere it's of influence. So part of the nationalist rhetoric that keeps the parties in power is to always have the boogeyman. I'm not so sure what China has done to India, you know, and vice versa. Frankly, I don't think China really pays much attention to India, sadly, but true. Uh, they don't have any commerce. India is not threatening China. China is expanding. And, yeah. so in, and, and so India uses that as a rhetorical device. But unfortunately, and this is really the national security issue that I think you're interested in, is half the, the federal the central budget of India goes to the military and to national security. So how do you pay for engineering education? How do you build for housing for all the millions that don't have housing, water, electricity? You know, if you're spending half your budget on the military, uh, which is the same as the United States. I mean, that's why we're fighting over $3 trillion, which Paul Krugman says is less than 1% of GDP over 10 years. You yeah. know, it's like a, a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But, you know, we're fighting over it because uh, we're spending so much on other things that aren't like socially beneficial. Yeah. And the same is true with India. Huh. So how about uh, how about India's relationship with with Pakistan? Uh, now they they used to be all one country before 1948. Uh, that that relationship has clearly been fraught with strife since Pakistan broke away in 1948. Does it all boil down to control over uh, Jammu and Kashmir, or are there other strategic challenges that are even more pressing for that relationship between Islamabad and New Delhi? Yeah, that's a big, complicated question, right? That's like, why I like to why, ask these questions. You know? <laughs> why is it that your neighbor that you were so upset with, you know, back in the forties, because the British, you know, decided to divide you based on religion? Right. You know, <laughs> how terrible is that? Uh, all of a sudden, you know, and and you know, in that process of partition, there it was sadly bloody. Uh, most of which could be blamed on the British. You know, could say why divide a country based on religion? Don't you think that would lead to bloody wars? You had a show last week on Ireland, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but that, that you know, unfortunately, that history doesn't get rewritten to be more uh, analytically precise. That, you know, so what happens is that, the, you know, this, what was once the Ottoman Empire then gets blamed on Pakistan and Bangladesh. And Pakistan now is the enemy. And sadly, you know, be, during the Cold War, the Soviets and the U.S. just fueled it by allowing, by funding nuclear bombs, yeah, you know, uh, India and Pakistan. Pakistan is fully loaded with uh, both countries with nuclear bombs, as well as nuclear power plants. You know, in India, they're on the coast, which is horrible for tsunamis. Right. And, and, and all that investment, which is very expensive for, you know, quote unquote, developing country, so much 
physical investment, military investment, and also kind of psychological, you know, political rhetoric, that it's hard to just say, oh, well, let's just play cricket and be friends, you know. (laughs) So every time there's a cricket match, you know, the the fundamentalists come out in India and close it down, you know, because they hate the fact that Muslims could come here and, and God forbid, win, you know. Of course, half the Indian cricket team were Muslims, but, you know, it's just this sort of ongoing rhetoric where no... even someone as intelligent as you, you know, can't like untangle and say, oh, it, it could be very simple, you know, because they're not fighting over a border. They're not fighting over water. They're not fighting over resources. It's just fighting over rhetoric. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, in India, there have been some horrific uh, mass slaughters uh, on, on both sides. But mo- usually the Muslim uh, minority population takes the worst of that. Uh, terrible, terrible uh, events that have ha- happened throughout modern Indian hi- history. And if I'm not uh, mistaken, there are actually more more Muslims living inside modern India than there are citizens in Pakistan. Is that right? Uh, that might be right. It's uh, one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. Yeah, but uh, I, I I can't. I don't have my calculator with me. Yeah. But that sounds like you know, it's a you know, it's it's like uh, whatever ten fifteen percent of the. Yeah. Uh, Indian population, but that's a billion yeah. and point two. So in the post nine eleven era, we've we've also seen India shift away from being aligned with Russia, where they were pretty closely aligned throughout the Cold War, towards an alignment with the United States. So there's been almost this kind of strange shift that's occurred in our U.S. relationship with with Pakistan and India. Uh, yeah. There's even Indian participation in what's called the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue between the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. Uh, it's interesting that no, they don't really come out and say it very often, but that's clearly a, a, a security dialogue focused very heavily on China. Uh, what can we expect from U.S.-India relations in the years to come from, from what you've seen and heard in India? Yeah, no, uh, that's a, a good question. The way that um, the U.S. is trying to manage this, you know, we're, we're, we're giving huge sums of money, uh, mostly for military, to Pakistan, to India. Uh, and the whole point is not about that relationship, but really about China. Right. <laughs> and, 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 but, you know, these governments are willing to take the loans and, and take the equipment, even though it puts them in debt. Um, I think the, you know, the, the future between India and the U.S., I'm, I'm sure will be good on that kind of global geopolitics. Um, but that means that the U.S. has to kind of uh, close one eye to human rights violations mm. and to, you know, to the, the sense of uh, social justice that supposedly, you know, we, we hold the mantle for. Um, I think in terms of economics, if you look at uh, the amount of money uh, that's been invested in India in the U.S., from the U.S., it's, it's quite substantial in terms of a certain type of investment, mergers and acquisitions and, uh, uh, you know, short term investments in I.T., as well as what I was describing, you know, um, Amazon and Walmart and mm-hmm. Google, uh, you know, there was a there was a moment which the, uh, the, the Indian government quietly was going to negotiate a deal with. I think it was Google to have Google manage all its hardware and software and then all the data would go on to the Google cloud wow. as it's doing with you know the whole world. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody found out, you know, and so there was like, a, I don't know what ha- what was resolved quietly or openly. Openly, they said, no, we would never do that. <laughs> But, you know, so you could see the economic influence of the U.S. if you call those companies U.S. companies. But, you know, um, I mean, they, they don't pay taxes in the U.S., so maybe they shouldn't be called that. But they also don't pay taxes in India. 
So I think where the friction will come when Indian population, which is doing, is starting to question tax-free, you know, investment by uh, U.S. companies and demand that they pay local taxes. And hopefully we demand that they pay, you know, U.S. taxes, which will slow down this kind of economic volatility that's happening in both countries and might, you know, make problems for the White House, you know. But I think it's a good, healthy conversation to have. That is that, that, that those investors should have some responsibility. They, they stay for less than five years in their investment. If they're going to invest in infrastructure, they should stay for 10, 20, 30 years, which means the Wall Street folks will disappear. And, you know, Ford and Apple, and they might stay longer, you know, for the longer term. Yeah. Interesting enough, just last week, two weeks ago, Ford, the largest producer of cars in India, just closed down. So uh, there's an there's a, a economic crisis, which we haven't really talked about, on top of the pandemic, which has really uh, shrunk the middle class, which is affecting U.S. businesses, you know, that work in India. But these are all things that don't necessarily bubble up to geopolitics, but will create tensions between the U.S. and India, I think, in the near future. And, and I mean, hopefully everyone will get along and we'll realize, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, U.S. and Pakistan get along? Why not Pakistan and India and U.S. get along? And then, hey, why not China that produces all our consumer goods yeah. you know, in the U.S.? Why don't we get along with them since we do get along with them, <laughs> since we're dependent on them, you know, right? So what it sounds like you're describing is that uh, India may be headed for some serious uh, internal political changes based on economics oh, yeah. and uh, and COVID and a bunch of other things too. Yeah, I mean there are there are protests of uh, what we call social movements sprouting up all over India. You know, there was one point before the BJP took power that the Interior Minister in India said, frankly, that they only controlled forty percent of the land mass in India. Meaning in 60% of the areas, there are places that want to secede or want autonomy or, you know, uh, movements of uh, tribal communities, uh, forest dwellers, farmers uh, who want independence from, you know, in a sense, the injustices of the government. So there's a lot of turmoil that exists in India. And I see it as exciting as that's where deliberative democracy, you know, is really happening. That's going to force whatever party in power to be more responsive, you know. I mean, the, the, the poverty rates are going up. The middle class is shrinking. And there's, uh, you know, COVID showed that there was no public health system. Yeah. In fact, if you want to get plastic surgery or a new hip, you know, new nose or a, a new kidney, uh, most of the new investment in hospitals in India are for that. So retired <laughs> folks from Florida are more likely to get hospital care than, you know, someone with COVID. That's an inequality that needs to be addressed in, wow. in the United States and I think in India. Huh. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, Professor Michael Goldman, we've reached the end of our show for today. Uh, we have covered a lot of ground on India, and I thank you for that. And so thank you for joining us again on National Security this week. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks hey, for the great questions, John. What courses are you teaching at the U this, uh, this term? So I'm teaching a course on climate justice. Uh, you know, uh, I can, the students... Uh, are so interested in this topic because it's their future, right? So, you know, I'm an older generation dude who's just admitting complicity and then saying, <laughs> hey, let's figure this out. <laughs> yeah, I think so. so. I, in India, in Germany, in the United States, I see a, a lot of hope, yeah. you know, amongst the young in bringing about change. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that for those of us who are the age of 50 or older, uh, we've sort of lived high on the hog for a very long time and the world is uh, is changing rapidly right now. 
I think a lot of the activism that that I see uh, on climate comes from the young people because they realize that they're going to have to deal with the worst of this and try and raise a family in it as as we get closer and closer to two, three, four, maybe five, six degrees Celsius to change, and we, the, yeah. the world will fundamentally change if that happens. Uh, we will be doing a show in the future, by the way, on uh, the nexus of climate change and national security issues. So that's coming in Excellent. about another month. Uh, so, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We would love your feedback here on National Security This Week. Uh, so please take a few minutes to contact KYMN Radio and let us know how we're doing. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to... 95.1, the one station where you won't hear the same songs hour after hour. Keep up with local news and events. Rich Larson hosts a daily newscast Monday through Friday, as well as updates and other community news. And it's free. Stop by kymnradio.net frequently and look for updates on our Facebook page for news stories and community events. KYMN Radio is 95.1. The one.